Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And as the Lord uttered that statement not long before His crucifixion, He reminds us then and now that the singular truth, the singular way that leads to life everlasting is through Him. It still remains a true maxim that neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts 4 verse 12. And tonight how joyous is our heart that we have the ability to magnify and praise the Son of God and to do so in song as we have done, singing about the Paradise Valley, singing about the other matters and these songs as we have uttered these words. And perhaps our mind has been prepared to open another one of the Old Testament books. Since the early part of June on Sunday night, we have focused our Sunday evening lessons on the book of Exodus, using that time to remind ourselves of those ancient and salient truths. And tonight, we will in fact begin a much briefer series of lessons on the little prophetic book of Lamentations. It is to that book that I would direct your attention then, not only tonight, but for again, perhaps two, two more Sunday evenings, as we look at a few of the things that might be gleaned from one of the lesser-known books of the Old Testament, a book that's easily overlooked, somewhat easily neglected, but nonetheless one which is inspired, and contained within it are some meaningful and needed lessons for our present day. And so it is that tonight we will use a portion of our lesson to overview the book, perhaps setting the stage for an introduction, and then we'll look at some lessons that we might extract from the opening two chapters this evening. As you notice these introductory statements, first of all, it goes without saying that Lamentations is one of the books of the Old Testament. But just to notice that it is easily overlooked does not remove it from the placement that it has. If you have already looked in the opening pages in the Old Testament, you perhaps have found a table of contents, and you'll notice it's one of the prophetical books of the Old Testament. The last 17 books, beginning with Isaiah, going all the way through Malachi, that somewhat falls into these two divisions, the major prophets and the minor prophets. Lamentations is one of the books of major prophecy. It falls after Jeremiah, but before Ezekiel. And as you perhaps notice it, though, it is far shorter than the other major prophetical books. And ask questions like this. Who wrote it? To whom was it written? What were the circumstances surrounding its writing? Were there some particular messages that were to reign supreme as one gave thought to the ideas contained in it? Were there certain lessons the hearers were supposed to appreciate and learn? And of course, along the way in that... Are there thoughts that can be so useful to you and to me still today? It is with those thoughts in mind that we'll turn into some thoughts about the book as a whole. And I've tried to put them together in the following way. Immediately its writer is identified as none other than the prophet Jeremiah. We are acquainted with Jeremiah by virtue of that marvelous book, the book of Jeremiah. 52 scintillating chapters in which we encounter the emotion of this man. One who nonetheless, he was devoted to the cause and the kingdom of God at that time. He had a very tender heart for God's people. He's often called the weeping prophet of Judah because tears so often came to his eyes when he recognized the sinfulness and ungodliness with which his own people were described and how far removed they were from God's desire and His intent for them. As we call Him the weeping prophet, 
doesn't that remind us of the language of Jeremiah 9, beginning in verse 1, where Jeremiah could say, All day long mine eyes flow down with tears for this people, because they're valiant but not for truth. They had a mindset and a desire to be strong militarily, economically, with fame and popularity, but God, but Jeremiah said they're not strong for truth. May you and I never be so described with that kind of idea. You'll also notice some of the other features. This book, one of the very few, I might add, in the Bible, has an acrostic structure to it. Now, the 119th Psalm has one, but let me explain what I mean by that as it relates to the book of Lamentations. If you look carefully at chapter 1 of Lamentations, you'll notice it has 22 verses. If you'll look carefully at chapter 2, you'll notice it has 22 verses. If you notice chapter 3, it has 66 verses. Chapter 4 has 22 verses. Chapter 5 also has 22 verses. That at offhand may not seem that significant. However, there are two thoughts, two remarks worthy of being made. First of all, the Hebrew alphabet had 22 letters in it. And if one is able to read Hebrew, you will learn the following idea. Each one of the verses in chapter 1 has the following characteristic. The opening word begins with the successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Thus, the first verse of chapter 1 has as its first letter in its first word the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The second verse has as its opening letter the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The third verse has the third letter as its opening letter. And you get the idea with me. This, in many ways, was a poem. And as Jeremiah penned it, he used the character of the Hebrew alphabet to begin each successive phrase in it with the next letter. That same pattern holds true in chapter 2. The first verse of chapter 2 begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the second letter with the second, the second verse with the second letter. Chapter 4 is exactly the same way. Thus, chapters 1, 2, and 4 are directly acrostic as they relate to the Hebrew alphabet. You might ask about chapter 3. It has 66 verses. It doesn't seem to match. However, there is still an acrostic structure even to it. Verses 1, 2, and 3 in that chapter all begin with the first letter of the, of the Hebrew alphabet. Verses 4, 5, and 6 begin with the second letter. Verses 7, 8, and 9 with the third letter. It's just that now the verses come in sequences of three that again begin with the very next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. The only rule, of course, that's broken in all of this is chapter 5. Chapter 5 is not acrostic. Despite the fact that it has 22 verses, the verses do not begin with successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. But might you and I notice that as Jeremiah penned this, it is the case that as you read the book, he has not strained at all to tie it to the acrostic nature of the Hebrew alphabet. The verses flow smoothly. They flow so openly and well. It is with that thought in mind, I might ask you to notice the next comment. The background of this book is not the happiest in Israelite history. In fact, it could arguably be affirmed to be one of the unhappiest in all of Hebrew history. What were Jeremiah's circumstances as he wrote this book? You and I are about to notice very clearly that they were somber, sad, and destructive. Here's what had happened. 
beginning with many of the prophets well known to you and me, like Isaiah and like Micah and like many of the others. God had forewarned His people with such power that if you don't repent, turn your life to me and follow me with wholeness and goodness, give, not, give me not only service every now and then, but wholehearted service all the time. He said, if that doesn't happen, you will be going into captivity. And in fact, you will see this city that you have so often highly respected, this place known as Jerusalem, where the temple is. You will live to see it destroyed. And through His prophets, God predicted that this was going to happen if they did not proceed to follow Him correctly and appropriately and obediently. As the years passed by, the people did not heed God's warnings. The prophets came and they went. They lived and they died. And one by one, the people continued to follow idolatry and proceeded to follow other attention-getters besides the God of heaven. And so it was in 605 B.C. that Nebuchadnezzar came with the Babylonian regime and began, in fact, to overrun Jerusalem. He did not destroy the city on that occasion. However, eight years later, he came back. You see, they began, they, in fact, the people of God on that occasion upset Nebuchadnezzar again. He had left them for eight years, but he came back after they upset him when he came back this time, he ransacked the city by and large, leaving very few behind because he took off many of the noblest, the most able workers, and those who had, of course, the capability of riches. He still wasn't finished. After this episode in 597 B.C., it was some 13 years later he came back again. As he did so this time, he destroyed the city completely. Might you and I pause to notice some of the things he did. I take these thoughts from Jeremiah chapter 52 as well as 2 Kings chapter 25. In both those chapters, we have the chronicle of some of the things that Nebuchadnezzar did. He burned that temple. Remember the temple that Solomon constructed? Such ornateness, such exquisiteness and extravagance. He burned it to the ground and lo and behold... He took those golden treasures and hauled them off to Babylon. Those golden bowls that Solomon had had constructed, the finery and the golden vessels that were to be used in that temple, Nebuchadnezzar stole them, took them off to Babylon. When he left Jerusalem this time, there was nothing left. The wall was destroyed. The palaces were destroyed. The houses of most of those that were worth keeping were all destroyed. And by now, the only citizens left were the poor, those that were disadvantaged, those who were unable to, in fact, put together any threat to Babylon anymore. Precious Jerusalem had been destroyed. Might we ask, where was Jeremiah in all of this? Jeremiah began his prophetic labors in 626 B.C. It was on that occasion that God called him and commissioned him with some words to go and speak to Judah. And in Jeremiah 1, verse 9, and verse 10, this is what he said, Go and speak with my words unto them. God would give him the words to say. And as Jeremiah proclaimed them with power and beauty, isn't it so sad the people had no interest in obeying what he said? Jeremiah was alive, you see, when Nebuchadnezzar came calling. And when he came, Jeremiah watched what happened to Jerusalem. He watched the armies burn it down. 
He wasn't one of them hauled off into captivity, you see. He was there to witness it. One more time, the tears flowed down his cheeks. One more time, as he watched the precious city that could have been so great in the service of God, the very ones from whom God had set forth His law, this city was now basically no more. Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed it. As you and I turn to Lamentations, that sets the stage for the book we're about to study. The word Lamentations has as its root word lament. And when you and I think about lamenting, we think about a person weeping and crying who is so destitute internally because of some emotion that he or she has witnessed and seen. Nebuchadnezzar has just sat and watched Jerusalem be destroyed. And after seeing it, this is the poem that he put together. This is the book that he wrote in the aftermath of that destruction. This will tell us what he saw. And when we read what he saw, we too will be led to appreciate the enormity of the destruction. And not only that, the lessons that Jeremiah needed again to help the people come to understand. It is with those thoughts in mind. Let us turn to some lessons about the nature of the book of Lamentations. We have set the background for it the terribleness, the destruction that surrounded Jerusalem. And now we're prepared to look at some of the things to be seen in it. Lesson number one that comes out of chapter one will directly tell us the following. We'll be reminded in no uncertain terms about the high price of low living. You and I could ask many questions about Jerusalem, about the placement, how God brought this about and why. And before the book is finished, we will have the opportunity to address all of them. But for now, let us look at verse 1, the opening verse of the opening chapter, and listen to the vivid description of Jerusalem then and now as Jeremiah was writing. How doth the city sit solitary? That was full of people. How has she become as a widow, she that was great among the nations and princess among the provinces, how is she become tributary? And if you're reading in the King James translation, you'll notice some exclamation marks scattered throughout that verse. This carried great emotion behind it. Perhaps as you and I read it and as we put in the emotion behind those exclamation marks, we may read it, How doth the city sit solitary that was so full of people? Not too many days before, Jeremiah had witnessed a bustling and thriving city in which individuals were going about their daily business and walk of life. And now, and now, it sits solitary. That word solitary in Hebrew means desolate. You'd look down the streets, it looked like a ghost town. It'd been destroyed. All of the preciousness and the jewelry and the finery, the nobles had all been taken away. They were there no more. You also notice in that opening verse, he likens it to a grieving widow. This woman whose husband has passed on and she is covered with emotion over her sorrowfulness and loss. This is how he describes Jerusalem. This city that was once the capital of David. It was thus the centerpiece of the entirety of the kingdom. And now it was basically desolate. One final description. How is she become tributary? As you'll notice, that word tributary has behind it the word despairing. Jeremiah was basically in despair, as were the others who were still here because of the desolation that now surrounded them. 
Isn't it amazing to consider then and now as it related to Jerusalem? But not only that. Notice in verse number 20 of chapter 1, we notice one other term employed with respect to this city. It says, Behold, O Lord, for I am in distress. My bowels are troubled, mine heart is turned within me, for I have grievously rebelled. Abroad the sword bereaveth, at home there is as death. Can you imagine a worse circumstance than this? The sword tears if you're far away from here, but there's nothing here left but death. The city that was once so precious and golden is now described as being troubled in distress because of her rebellion. Distressful situations are not comfortable for any of us. When perhaps you've been in one in life, you feel your pulse quicken, your hands get sweaty. It's just so unpleasant from every perspective. Do you notice that that's the word used here to describe Jerusalem? It is in fact terrible to even think of it. But that too is not all. Might I ask you to notice verses 6 and 7. Another graphic description. And from the daughter of Zion all her beauty is departed. Her princes are become like hearts that find no pasture, and they are gone without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembered in the days of her affliction and of her miseries all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old, when her people fell into the hand of the enemy, and none did help her. The adversaries saw her and did mock at her Sabbaths. Her beauty is removed. You and I lovingly look upon beautiful things. We often remark about the beauty of a day and how glorious has been God's blessing of us in that regard. As one looks upon the beauty of what Jerusalem once had, the pleasant things and the beauty are now gone. At this point, we aren't finding anything complimentary about Jerusalem anymore. All that once made her special is now gone. It's been taken, it's been removed, and it is no more. In light of all of that, perhaps consider with me this. And let's make a modern application of it. And may we be so quick and bold as to put it like this. Sin always does this. This isn't unique to Jerusalem. Sin always does this. Take any life, no matter what pleasantness and beauty that once was its description, you let sin enter and become rampant therein and see what you have left. One of the messages throughout the entirety of the Word of God is that sin always does this. Sin looks pleasant and it looks honorable and quite often Satan makes it look appealing and attractive, but sin always does this. It will take a life and turn it into shambles. It will take and strip from a life all the potential and the possibility that it once had. Have you and I known of a young person who perhaps by virtue of his or her rearing indeed had a life of marvelous potential in front of him or her? But they began to drink, to smoke. Drugs perhaps aren't far now behind. They become embroiled in sexual matters and soon, though 17 years old, there's now a child to take care of. And all the potential that once was there now has to be redirected to something else. Do you see what sin did? Can all of us see how sin took what once was and completely turned it to what now it must be differently? We must be ever mindful and careful 
on the one hand complimentary of our youth when they make those decisions of avoiding sin like this because they know what is going to happen, but ever corrective when they begin to take those steps in the wrong direction because you and I know as adults this is what sin does. It's what it always does. And if they are fortunate enough to advance through life without the terribleness of its consequences, what shall they face at judgment? What will they hear answer when God addresses the matters of their life and finds them lacking in those matters related to truth? We all know how sad it'll be then, and this description of Jerusalem doesn't hold a candle to what hell will be like. We don't want our youth to enter that, and we as adults sometimes find ourselves making mistakes. That person who has a good job, who has come to appreciate putting the paths and the feet of life in proper order, but he or she starts to gamble. The money is lost, can't pay the bills anymore, and soon the cars are repossessed. The mortgage can't be paid, and now the family has to go find dwelling places elsewhere. What did sin do? It took everything that was honorable and noble and stripped it away, destroying it in its path. Sin always does this. No wonder perhaps that title is so appropriate, the high price of low living. Those who choose to live so lowly, though it may look again so appealing, what shall they find in the aftermath? Once the dust is settled and the tornado of sin is gone, what will be left behind is like Jerusalem. That life, perhaps from that point onward, will be burdened with a conscience that seemingly can never be cleared. To that person who chooses, perhaps with those sexual matters, to have an abortion, and that mother can never forget what once was in her that she allowed to be murdered. Cold-blooded murder is what it is. Jeremiah will tell us in Jeremiah 1 verse 5, and Isaiah will do the same in Isaiah 49 1, that that is a living being inside that mother. May we think seriously about the high price of low living. As you'll notice near the bottom of that slide, we're told by Paul in Romans 6 23, the wages of sin is death. It promises to pay, but there's what it always pays. It brings inevitably sorrow, sin, shame, and death. No wonder Satan does such a good job at sugarcoating it, making it look appealing when in reality it is not. In James 1 verse 15, we have something similar stated to that. But perhaps one final thought in Lamentations 1.8. This is the lesson text that was read in our hearing a few moments ago. In verse 8 it says, Jerusalem hath grievously sinned, therefore she is removed. All that honored her despise her because they have seen her nakedness. Yea, she sigheth and turneth backward. Isn't it amazing that Jeremiah said, those who once honored her now despise her. Can't you and I think of the applications of that point too? When that person makes such poor decisions, it begins to walk the pathway of sinfulness. And that person who was once so highly regarded is now not asked to participate because they can't be respected anymore. They're not looked up to as an example anymore. Haven't we seen more than one athlete who's done this? A professional athlete for which millions of little boys and girls looked up to that man or that woman and did so and perhaps often wanted to be like them. 
And yet it was found out what the athlete had done, the kind of life he or she had lived, how many they had in fact taken advantage of or in some way sinned. And now look where they are. They are not like they once were. The empire that once was there, the reputation that once was theirs has been removed completely. That's what happened to Jerusalem. And that takes us to the second lesson tonight. Not only is there a high price of low living, we can also notice from chapter 1 verse 12 the following lesson. The little regard that is sometimes had for things spiritual. Might I invite your attention to look interestingly with me at verse 12 of chapter 1. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of His fierce anger. As we've advanced a little further in chapter 1, this is the setting. As Jeremiah was lamenting over Jerusalem, his heart was broken over what he was seeing, and yet there were those who were passing by and not giving it a second thought. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? They weren't troubled by it. They weren't heartbroken by what they saw. They didn't care. Might we be quick to say how sad it is to have no regard, little interest in matters that truly are spiritual. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 15, the thought is even highlighted more so. It says, All that pass by clap their hands at thee. They hiss and wag their head at the daughter of Jerusalem, saying, Is this the city that men call perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? Can you almost picture it? As people passed by Jerusalem, this city that had been held up so long as a centerpiece of God's goodness, a place in which so often God had defended it. Armies had been defeated because of it. And yet now they say, Is this the city you're talking about? The one that was the joy of perfection, the one that held such beauty. In fact, as they did so, it says, they clapped their hands as they passed by. They wagged their head as they looked at it in shame. There were people who just didn't care. Might we give some thought to a parallel situation that exists today for us? When it comes to spiritual matters, are there still those who do not care? Those who have little, if any, interest in matters spiritual? If so, we might ask what will be their end and what will happen in regard to their final disposition. On that slide, there's some thoughts like this. You and I know that God's citadel on earth today is not the city of Jerusalem. It's not New York City. It's not Washington, D.C. It is no physical place like that. His kingdom is, of course, the church. And those who look with disinterest upon it will find themselves in a similar circumstance to what we find in the book of Lamentations. They too will find themselves in a sorrowful circumstance indeed because by far the greatest institution on earth is the church of our Lord. One can't get to heaven without it. In Acts 2.47, we learn that the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. The American Standard reading it, those that were being saved. One is saved, he or she's in the church. As you give meaning and thought to that with me, we can't then look upon the church with disinterest or with disrespect. She is a bright and shining, the bright and shining beacon 
Is it not said in 1 Timothy 3.15, the pillar and ground of the truth is the church of the living God. That pillar is, should be something of strength and fortitude, something that has the character of the understanding of what its foundation is. Aren't we told the chief cornerstone is Jesus Himself in 1 Peter 2, verses 5-8? through 8? Aren't we reminded that He is the head of the body in Colossians 1.18? Aren't we told that He is the foundation for all in 1 Corinthians 3.11? Aren't we reminded that it was that very church for which He died and shed His blood? Acts 20.28 it is still a marvelous enterprise to consider what Paul stated to those Ephesian elders. Take heed to yourselves and to the church over which he hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. That thought alone tells us how significant the church is. If it took the blood of our Lord to purchase it and he died at Calvary, doesn't that lift the church to the echelon of its highest existence. Thus, may we never look upon it with disrespect like they did Jerusalem back then. Forgetting what its basic meaning was, we do not come on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights and Wednesday just to say we went. We don't gather here just to consume those four hours a week. We gather here for the penultimate activity of praising the God of heaven, worshiping His name, drawing attention to Him, and hopingly, hopefully directing ourselves to better lives using His Word as our guide. As we do that, we will be bettered as our individuals, and we will lift high the thrust and meaning of the church, which is so eloquently presented in Ephesians 3.21. Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. We direct glory to God by our being here tonight. And doesn't that, of course, speak about the decision that some have made not to be here? Where are they directing the glory of their lives tonight? In fairness, there are a few more thoughts upon that slide, not the least of which would be this one. As we give thought to these who had such disrespect for Jerusalem and for what she stood for, might we also look at it from this approach? It may be that you and I have known individuals who actually find pleasure when church, when church members struggle. There are those who have such disinterest that they even take it one step further. They're happy when they see the church in trouble. Ha! You think that you're the ones going to heaven and look at what you're dealing with. Church members who are unfaithful, those who have to come forward and confess error of this or that sort, and they actually take pleasure when church members stumble. Isn't that terrible? Isn't that awful? And yet there are some who have so little consideration for the church that that's the way they feel. A verse that points us in that direction is to look particularly at Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23, as well as Ephesians 3, verses 10 and 11. Those individuals have missed completely the purpose that associates to the church. That church's purpose is in fact the matter in which salvation is to be found. And those who would have the nerve to ridicule and make fun of church members when they stumble, as if they are doing something so light and trivial, they have missed entirely the fact that Jesus is the Savior of the body. No body, no salvation. If we thus are not faithful members of that body, there will be no salvation for us. Thus... Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? 
It's interesting that Ezekiel had a very similar message to that one in Ezekiel 8. But Jeremiah stated it so well here that we will move and look at yet our third and final lesson for the evening. We learn something interesting as we particularly look at chapter 2. In this chapter, beginning in verse number 2, we find some descriptives of God. And might I direct your attention to just a few of these statements. The question before us is this one. You have heard us describe so far this evening that Jerusalem was destroyed. Though she was, of course, the centerpiece of where God's kingdom on earth at that time was, she now was destroyed. The obvious question, why? Why did God let this happen? Was He powerless to stop it? If so, what does that say about God's omnipotence? Obviously, if He could not stop it but wished to do so, that means God's not very strong. It means He isn't very powerful. But on the other hand, if God could stop it and didn't, what was the thinking behind this? Why did God allow His people to be destroyed like this? Was there some greater good to come from it? Were there lessons to be gleaned? Let us look at four verses in chapter 2 and learn a lesson up front. Verse number 2, The Lord hath swallowed up all the habitations of Jacob, and hath not pitied. He hath thrown down in his wrath the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He hath brought them down to the ground. He hath polluted the kingdom and the princes thereof. Who was responsible for this destruction? You couldn't just blame it on Nebuchadnezzar. God did it. Verse 4, He hath bent his bow like an enemy. He stood with his right hand as an adversary and slew all that were pleasant to the eye in the tabernacle of the daughter of Zion. He poured out his fury like fire. Who was it that was really behind the burning of that temple? The complete removal of it as a centerpiece of worship? You couldn't just blame it on the army of Babylon. God did it. Verse 6, And he hath violently taken away the tabernacle as if it were a garden. He hath destroyed his places of the assembly. The Lord hath caused the solemn feasts and Sabbaths to be forgotten in Zion, and hath despised in the indignation of his anger the king and the priest. Who did all of this? God did it. Verse 8, The Lord hath purposed to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion, he hath stretched out a line, he hath not withdrawn his hand from destroying. Therefore he made the rampart and the wall to lament. They languished together. And so in all those four verses and many others that might have been read, it was God who brought this destruction on Jerusalem. It was God who made it happen, who allowed it to occur, and who empowered Babylon to be able to accomplish it. And so again we ask why? Could it be that God is a God of destruction? As often as we hear the refrain that God is a God of mercy and grace and kindness and love, that He is a God who wishes well, could it also be that God is a God of destruction? Let us look at a few of the more interesting verses found also in chapters 1 and 2 that help us appreciate not only here but elsewhere the fact of what it means to describe God as a God of destruction. In fact, one verse that points us, perhaps through all of what will be remaining in the lesson, will be verse 17 of chapter 2. And in that singular passage, this is what we read. 
The Lord hath done that which He had devised. He hath fulfilled His word that He had commanded in the days of old. He hath thrown down and hath not pitied. And He hath caused thine enemy to rejoice over thee. He hath set up the horn of thine adversaries. To listen to Jeremiah, it is as if he says, there were prophecies of this happening ages in the past. God has only done that which He said He would do. If that's the case, then you and I can't blame God for all of that which has taken place, for He was only doing that which He said He would do. God wasn't being capricious. He wasn't being off the cuff. If we revisit Deuteronomy, we will learn something amazing in chapter 28 of that chapter. We will not read all of that chapter but if you would begin reading in verse 15 and read through verse 68, a somewhat lengthy reading, we would all learn that God says that this is what I will do if you turn from me, if you serve other gods, if you do not in fact obediently follow my ways, I will destroy your places, I will take you into captivity, I will remove your dwelling places and your places of interest, I will leave you desolate. Jeremiah only makes note of the fact here that God did what God said that God would do. God is always a God of His Word, isn't He? He reacted to the people based on what we read in chapter 1, verse 8. Jerusalem hath grievously sinned. Sin also, you see, is punished. God does not look lightly upon sin. Wasn't it true that Habakkuk said in Habakkuk 1.13, as God spoke through him, Thou art of purer eyes than to look upon iniquity. And haven't we already learned tonight that the wages of sin is death? Sin does not now nor will it ever go unpunished. Oh, it's true that the Bible doesn't tell us when that punishment comes. We've learned tonight the punishment can come swiftly. That drunk driver may be killed before he gets home. But we also know God can delay that punishment, but it will not be removed. Punishment will always follow sinful behavior. Jerusalem had sinned. Jerusalem was punished. Now let's be quick to notice that we'll learn before the book is over that a remnant will return. This was not the final disposition for those who had an interest in again hearing the Word of God and doing it would again be given the opportunity to do so. And even in the place that they formerly had lived, the place of Jerusalem. We'll close the lesson tonight by making note of that same idea. There is a return from sin tonight. If you have found your life in sin, you can come down this aisle tonight. Make a confession of that very walk of life. If you've formerly been a Christian, we'll pray with you, for you, for God's forgiveness of you. And you will be able to stand again sanctified, justified, and right before God. If you've never become a Christian, the way those sins are forgiven is in baptism, according to Acts 22:16. The blood of Christ will wash them away at that point. We could assist you tonight upon your hearing, your belief, your repentance and confession. We could then baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost. In summary this evening, these are the lessons that we have seen. And in them, we may summarize them like this. After noting the history of the book, we learn first of all tonight about the high price of low living. About how much can be lost as one proceeds down the pathway of sinfulness. Secondly, 
we turned our attention to disinterest in spiritual things and learned how sorely regretful one will be in that state. And then finally, God indeed is a God of destruction upon those who will not do His will. Will you not do His will tonight? May we not all desire to do that ever more boldly and courageously with each passing day. And tonight, if you need to respond publicly to the gospel call of invitation, as uttered for us in 2 Thessalonians 2.14, will you not do that while together we stand and while we sing?